Dr. Grant, we're not leaving this island without our son. Then you can go and look for him. Or you can stick with us as long as you don't hold us up. Either way, you probably won't get off this island alive. Hi, welcome to To the 90s and Beyond. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I've been doing film reviews since the middle of the 1990s. 1996 to be exact, and you can read all of my written work at Quipster.net. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you, if you enjoy the films of the 90s that I, I delve into here, you'll go back to the 1980s on my other podcast called Around the World in 80s movies. You can find the link at my website, quipster.net. Now today I'm going to be getting into the third entry in a franchise that started in the 1990s, but this particular entry was just outside of the 1990s. actually came out in 2001, but I remind you, this is called To the 90s and Beyond. Sometimes we're going to go beyond the 90s to cover some of the newer movies within franchises that did start in the 80s or 90s. Jurassic Park 3 is what I'm talking about today. Jurassic Park 3, the first of the films that Steven Spielberg did not direct. It is a PG-13 rated film. It does have intense sci-fi terror and violence. The runtime, the shortest of the series, at an hour and 32 minutes. This one brings back Sam Neill, but also stars William H. Macy, Taya Leone, Alessandro Nivola, and Trevor Morgan. The director this time is Joe Johnston. Screenplay credited to Peter Buckman, Alexander Payne, and Jim Taylor. Now, as I mentioned, Steven Spielberg decided not to direct Jurassic Park 3. He made it official in June 1998. He decided he was just going to produce this time. This was a struggle that he went through actually before he did The Lost World in 1997. During the making of The Lost World, Spielberg felt completely uninspired. He felt like he was slavishly cooking from a recipe, and there was just nothing at all of sustenance within making that film to make him think that he wanted to come back to do another one. He had a lot of other movie ideas. You know, he's only got one life to live. There are too many kids at home for him to think about wasting time on what he considered to be uninspiring projects. So... He had to get a new director for continuing the Jurassic Park series. But before he secured one, he decided to ask author Michael Crichton to develop a new story outline that they could use for a third film and also to write the screenplay. Crichton had an idea to make a prequel story to Jurassic Park for a while, but Spielberg felt that audiences were not going to accept any kind of entry in the series, in the film series anyway, that was mostly devoid of dinosaurs. Crichton decided, well, maybe a story could take place in between Jurassic Park and The Lost World in the continuity. Maybe that could work, showing those eerie experiments done by InGen and the laboratories that were on Isla Sorna and how the dinosaurs eventually broke out to take over the island. Spielberg, you know, this was a little bit better, but he wanted the cast of this third Jurassic Park film to include at least one or some of the original characters that the audience already likes and can relate to, not just some in-gen scientists who are doing work that many people would consider to be pretty dubious. So after several fruitless days trying to come up with something, Crichton eventually told Spielberg that he really lacked any kind of new or fresh or innovative ideas beyond that. So he left to write his next novel called Timeline. Now Spielberg actually did have a few ideas of his own as far as what he wanted to do 
for the third entry. One he keyed in on was where travelers going by plane would end up marooned on the island of Isla Sorna. And then they would be, of course, chased and attacked by deadly dinosaurs. But eventually, in order to incorporate some of those characters that came from the uh, the first Jurassic Park, paleontologist Dr. Alan Grant would be found eventually living there too, surreptitiously in this treehouse, kind of like Robinson Crusoe. He would be there to study dinosaurs up close, and he would become kind of the savior and part of the action. The finale would eventually harken back to the ending of Crichton's first Jurassic Park novel, where the island was firebombed, and that would wipe out all of the dinosaurs on the island. There were concept posters drawn up of this, subtitles to Jurassic Park like Embryo or Breakout or The Extinction, in fact, Extinction seemed like that would actually be the best bet for this third film because the fourth film, they could resurrect the dinosaurs with the embryos, kind of like Spielberg had always intended through the shaving cream cryo can that was lost on Isla Nublar, as you had seen in Jurassic Park. Now, David Kep, the uh, screenwriter for the first two films, he was asked if he would like to return. Like Crichton, he felt he too had run out of any kind of creative ideas, and he recommended that Spielberg get somebody entirely new to offer what the series needed, which was a fresh approach. Now that honor went to a newcomer called Craig Rosenberg. And Rosenberg's take, after listening to Spielberg and what he wanted for a third film, it would involve three families who chartered two planes that were bound for the Galapagos Islands. And the adults were all riding in one plane and their teenage children were riding in the other plane. And that plane that is filled with those teenagers has to make an emergency crash landing on Isla Sorna, and that leaves them completely marooned among all of these deadly dinosaurs. Eventually, the survivors of the plane crash, as well as uh, some of the dino attacks, discover Alan Grant, who eventually helps them survive and save the day. Now, Spielberg had Rosenberg inject leftover ideas from the first two films. In the story, he wanted... Pteranodons, the flying creatures closely related to dinosaurs, as well as marine reptiles like the Chronosaurus. And eventually, Spielberg deemed that the, uh, the marine-based dinosaurs should be saved for a potential sequel. Now, in August of 1999, Spielberg did finally hire a director, Joe Johnston. Johnston was a former member of his crew on several of his films. In the interim, he had become a director for a lot of very popular films like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and Jumanji and Johnston, in fact, originally pitched Spielberg on letting him direct Jurassic Park 2 before it was known as The Lost World. Now, Spielberg, as I mentioned, he did opt to direct the second film himself, but he did promise at that time that Johnston would be on the shortlist if he decided to do a third film. And Johnston actually shot to the very top of that list off of the strength of his 1999 film called October Sky. Spielberg warned Johnston before he took the director's chair that these movies were exceedingly difficult to make. But Johnston, a big dinosaur fan, really wanted to do this film. He assured Spielberg that he was absolutely ready. So Spielberg decided to give the project completely over to Johnston while he turned his attention to directing AI. And he encouraged Johnston, just make this sequel his own. Don't bother trying to copycat what he did in the first two films. One big problem for Johnston coming in, he disliked Rosenberg's completed script. He felt it read like a horny teen slasher premise, you know, these teens being picked off one by one by these dinosaurs, and that was all mixed with a lot of corny jokes he found reminiscent of a, what he called a bad episode of the TV show Friends. 
He also found it pretty absurd that Alan Grant somehow would voluntarily live on an island with dinosaurs after what had happened to him in the first film. It just didn't seem plausible to him. So he wanted something different. So as they were securing a new writer to come on board, producer Kathleen Kennedy, still working on the Jurassic Park films, she encouraged Johnston to join consultant paleontologist Jack Horner on his dig in Montana. Now, while there, Horner imparted to Johnston a lot of things, including especially his annoyance about the first two films' portrayal of T-Rexes as predators instead of scavengers, and he didn't want to see the T-Rex again be the nemesis of the third film. So there were much bigger and meaner carnivorous dinosaurs that should be able to terrify human characters. One especially that Horner recommended was the clawed fish-eating Baryonyx, which eventually became the script's new nemesis until further down the road it became replaced by a larger apex predator very similar to the Baryonyx called the Spinosaurus. Johnston and and Spielberg talked about maybe including a scene where the Spinosaurus battles the T-Rex to ultimately become the dominant dino of Isla Sorna. Peter Buckman was the screenwriter eventually hired to revamp the Rosenberg script. Buckman, as far as trying to get Alan Grant to the island, he conceived initially that a pteranodon could fly out and grab Grant and then fly him back to Isla Sorna to its nest. But uh, during negotiations with actor Sam Neill, Neill really didn't like any of this. So he turned them down, feeling this was a, a pretty terrible idea, at least until they came up with something new. Now, in the completed Buckman treatment, after deciding that they were going to try to placate Neil, the action does jump around a lot more. There's a prologue showing wealthy Americans parasailing during this tourist trip near Isla Sorna. They mysteriously disappear, kind of setting up the, the ominous things in the sky around Isla Sorna. We then shift to Costa Rica, where there's this United States State Department agent that's tracking missing persons and eventually discovers the mutilated bodies of victims, presumably of vicious animal attacks. Then the action shifts to the United States, and that's where we find Dr. Alan Grant. He's at a fossil dig in Utah, while he's also trying to fund a research substation on Isla Sorna so that he can study velociraptors up close. Now, at the dig are this wealthy businessman, his female business associate, who also happens to be his romantic partner, and his 12-year-old son, who doesn't know about their relationship. The businessman is willing to pay Grant for this flyover sightseeing tour of Isla Sorna, while the government agent who was just seen in Costa Rica arrives to offer Grant additional government funding in exchange for his testimony regarding intel that he can gain by his flyover of Isla Sorna to help secure U.S. sovereignty over Site B. Grant agrees to these proposals so long as he does not set foot on the island, and everybody is in agreement with that. Now, the sightseeing plane, though, flies into the restricted territory, it hits something in the air that forces them to crash land on Isla Sorna. The survivors immediately come face to face with the deadly Spinosaurus. And then the film's action shifts again to the American agent discovering attacks that are spreading throughout Central America beyond Costa Rica. On Isla Sorna though, Grant discovers there is a pteranodon aviary And the human bones that he finds reveals that these pteranodons have somehow broken out of their aviary and have been searching for ways to feed their hungry babies 
of course, on the mainland in Central America. That's where we put two and two together. The agent independently discovers the source of the attacks. The film ends with a military rescue mission of these humans, and then the firebombing of Isla Sorna, while Alan Grant, who's still on the island, escapes into the jungle, presumably fated for that Robinson Crusoe existence that will set up maybe Jurassic Park 4. With this improved premise, as well as the promise of a fatter paycheck, Sam Neill did sign on, and he looked forward to especially fleshing out the character of Alan Grant, as well as many of his unresolved issues after Jurassic Park. He wanted to play him with deeper nuance, to a man jaded and very cynical about dinosaurs living in the world today. Spielberg then took to hiring as much of the same crew that worked on the first two films as he could get. However, he found that he could only really get the B-team for Stan Winston's animatronics, Michael Lantieri's practical effects, as well as Dennis Murin's visuals for Industrial Light Magic because Spielberg intended to use their A-team while he was working on AI. So he kind of uh, shifted the talent there. For the Spinosaurus, the, the big bad for Jurassic Park 3, the only known reconstructed Spinosaur had been destroyed during this bombing of Germany during World War II. So Winston's crew really had to rely on only written descriptions of how a Spinosaurus might appear using smaller fossil samples that were discovered around 1990. The Spinosaurus, as they envisioned it, was a dinosaur that had arms that were about eight feet long. It had this very elongated skull, a body about 60 feet long. Jack Horner did provide some input on the early drawings for the Spinosaurus, but eventually the crew they started taking more and more artistic license to make the Spinosaurus look deadlier and scarier. Now, for its behavior, they blended elements of a T-Rex with the side-to-side lumbering of a crocodile because it had a very crocodilian appearance. The animatronic Spinosaurus was the largest that Stan Winston Studios had ever created. It weighed about 12 tons. It measured 44 feet long. This was massive, even though it was smaller than an actual Spinosaurus. It was the heaviest design ever by the studio. In fact, it was so large, they had to remove an entire wall of their studio to get this creation out of the building and onto the set. Now, replacing production designer Rick Carter for the first two films was Ed Vero. Vero was a former colleague of both Spielberg and Johnston before on their movies. Johnston wanted a swampier, more decomposed look for the island, but also wanted a brighter look and a lighter tone from the very dark one we saw in The Lost World. And for the Velociraptors, they also changed the look somewhat. They added a more elongated mouth, colored quill-like scales to the dinosaurs, and that would represent their eventual historical evolution toward birds. Unlike the first two films, though, here, Jurassic Park 3, everything was rushed. Jurassic Park, that had two years, at least two years, of lead time, of planning, of doing all the dinosaurs before principal shooting ever began. The Lost World, it had less, but it still had at least a year. But Jurassic Park 3, by contrast, it went immediately into production with no settled script. The technical crew had to borrow from prior designs. There were very few, if any, improvements made to those designs because all of their effort was needed to concentrate on the design of these new dinosaurs, the Spinosaurus and the Pterosaurus and some of these other ones. Even more challenging, there were about 400 effects shots planned for Jurassic Park 3, and that was nearly twice as many as the first two films combined, but hardly a lot of time to come up with that. Now, William H. Macy originally turned down the role in Jurassic Park 3. He had scheduling conflicts at the time, but Laura Dern, she was the co-star of the film that they were working on in 2000 called Focus. She threatened that she was going to break his arm if he didn't accept the role, even if they didn't have a script for him to read. This would be great for his career and he could become a much more mainstream star. 
Spielberg was even willing to postpone the production of Jurassic Park 3 for a few weeks to free up Macy for the role. And considering all of this, Macy really couldn't turn down not only Spielberg, but this paycheck, claiming that he needed to pay tuition for his newborn baby someday, so might as well get the paycheck while he could. His co-star, Taya Leone, had been, at that time, contemplating retiring from acting altogether when she landed the Jurassic Park 3 role. She really found it almost impossible to say no when Steven Spielberg called her up, but there was also this very lucrative offer. And when she learned that she would be working with Sam Neill and William H. Macy, well, that pretty much sealed the deal, except she did have one condition. She wanted to perform every stunt that her male counterparts would do, and she also did not want her character to be just another screaming female in the jungle who always needs constant saving and who complains about not having all of her creature comforts around her. Joe Johnston, he assured Leone that her character would not even apply lip gloss on day two, like they would do in so many, so many Hollywood films. As the production started to ramp up, significant problems with Buckman's script became evident. Spielberg decided to go to David Kep for his advice. He said, please read this. Let me know what you think. And during a lengthy conference call, Kep told Spielberg, as well as the other creative team, that the side story involving the State Department agent was a major hindrance to the tempo of their new film. There were just too many characters to follow. There were too many delays in between action sequences that took away from the fun. Kep suggested that this film needed to be streamlined in a very major way. One thing he suggested was making one of the parasailers that we see mysteriously disappear in the prologue the son of the rich couple, and that would spark a rescue mission that would result eventually to that crashed plane. That includes Grant, who they had to figure out how to get him on board that plane, but eventually everybody at that meeting agreed with Kep's suggestions. A new script was ordered. They were going to scrap the Buckman script. Now, despite the economy of making one of them the young son, nobody at all really liked opening the film with the parasailers. They even held a contest to try to come up with a better opening than that, but nobody really could, so it remained. However, due to a lack of time and resources, Spielberg did have to remove this very major action sequence toward the climax of the film where the characters escape velociraptors on dirt bikes. He put in a placeholder ending at the time that he had already storyboarded for The Lost World where pteranodons attack the rescue helicopters that come Something he didn't use in the second film, but thought he could probably do it here. But eventually he found he really had to change the ending altogether because the United States military were not going to approve the use of its likeness or the army training airfield on Oahu that they wanted to shoot on because the decision to firebomb Isla Sorna not only ignored proper military protocol, but it also depicted the military as kind of the bad guys at the end. Spielberg eventually nixed the subtitle of Extinction because he felt, well, it's actually no longer relevant. Who are becoming extinct now? The humans? No. The dinosaurs? No. So if the dinosaurs were not going to die off, let's just call it Jurassic Park 3. It's not the best title, but at least everybody knows what that means. Five weeks from principal shooting now. The screenwriting team of Alexander Payne and Jim Taylor, Oscar nominated for their 1999 film, Election, Uncredited heroes working in Universal, they really sparked up Meet the Parents that became a huge success for the studio. They were brought in to incorporate Kep's suggestions and to better define all of the characters. They hammered out what they could within this four-week deadline. However, they were very much hamstrung by not only the genre movie limitations, but they also could not change the nature of a lot of the actors. There were a lot of dinosaurs in there they couldn't change, as well as the moments that they were supposed to perform. 
the design work, the set pieces, the art design, none of that could change. All of that was set. They had to work within that structure, writing dialogue specifically for the actors' personas. They did get some creativity here by changing the names of the characters and some of their backgrounds to provide better distinction, but there was only so much they could do on short notice and without being able to make major changes. Except for one major change they did bring in, the return of Jurassic Park's Ellie Sattler role into the story. Laura Dern, who happened to be a friend of Payne and Taylor because they had cast her in their 1996 directorial debut called Citizen Ruth. They already had a rapport with her, as did, coincidentally, Joe Johnston, who had cast her in October Sky. So she wanted to work with them again, although her schedule was pretty busy, so they could only contract her for one day of work. But... She did want to do something more than just a walk-on cameo, so the writers decided to make her a big factor in the climax. Initially, Ellie and Alan Grant were going to be in the process of breaking up, but remaining friends, but then Johnson, he really never thought that Ellie and Alan made a very plausible couple, a romantic couple. Their 20-year age difference was further compounded by Dern happening to look like she had not aged at all since the first film. So he deemed it better to show her as having moved on from waiting for Alan to become a family man that he never would become. She would now be married with children with another man and living very happily. And another decision, they opted to keep Ellie absolutely from the island because having Grant return already stretched believability. She would have to be just kind of calling him on the phone. But eventually that communication becomes a key part in the climax of the film and the reunification made for an audience-pleasing ending when they, that they did eventually in reshoots. Now, shooting took place about four weeks in Hawaii, primarily on Oahu, before they moved to Hollywood's Universal Studios for the rest. Major parts, though, of the Payne Taylor script were still unsettled at the time they started filming in Hawaii. It really lacked an ending to build toward... So Johnson tried to spin something positive out of this. He told the actors that the lack of a script really gave them a lot of artistic freedom. Being that this was such a plot-driven movie, they needed to always be driving forward to the next set piece. So a lot of the art was kind of left out on the cutting room floor eventually. Script doctor John August was hired for revisions during this period. But because August was working remotely, he wasn't really in tune with the shoot. And since they had to have new script pages daily... What he was doing was not really meshing with a lot of the improvised stuff that the actors were doing on the previous day. So after struggling for a couple of weeks, where William H. Macy and Sam Neill started writing scenes, August was removed. And in the interim, these actors still continued writing their own moments of heroism. Eventually, they decided to return the only screenwriter who actually had kind of a complete ending in mind that was approved before Peter Buckman. Buckman was immediately flown out to Hawaii to script each day's shoot. And in the process, he tried to incorporate as many of the elements of his prior script to try to carry them all the way to the finish line. Now, the finished film, as it exists, begins with a man, a family friend of this 14-year-old boy who happened to be parasailing over the heavily restricted island of Isla Sorna, aka Site B, where the dinosaurs happen to roam freely, they are forced into a crash landing there. Now, Paul and Amanda Kirby charter a plane for an aerial tour of this island after hiring Alan Grant, who agrees to lead the tour in exchange for funding research on Velociraptor intelligence, all very familiar here to the prior scripts. Unbeknownst to Grant, though, the Kirbys land the plane on the island in order to hunt for their missing son, and unbeknownst to the Kirbys, 
Grant's knowledge of the dinosaur island was not Isla Sorna, it was Isla Nublar, so he was kind of not prepared for this, and he's unhappy, especially getting thrown in among the ruthless predators yet again. Now, accompanying Grant is his student assistant, Billy Brennan, and the Kirbys bring along their own assistants, who happen to be mercenary types, it turns out. Lots of running from dinosaurs results. Anybody with less than two lines of dialogue pretty much gets immediately chomped. Now, Macy grumbled at the role's physicality. You know, he was almost 50 at the time. He just was not prepared for this kind of physical role. But he also complained that there were just countless, countless idle hours. They were always waiting for scenes to be set up, spending almost all day before they could even do anything. And then when they got to the point where they could do some acting, the script just wasn't there. So he expressed a lot of these grievances in the press, the disorganized production, the constant screenplay changes, the faulty equipment, all of these bruising stunts. He stated... Specifically, whoever made the decision to launch such an expensive $100 million endeavor with no scripts should be shot. He eventually backtracked later. He actually changed his tune in the press. He blamed his bitterness on a particularly arduous day of filming. He said it was everything was great. Everything was amazing. So one action scene that really was very physical for all of the, the main actors was one where they're the dinosaurs are rolling the plane fuselage and the actors were tumbling inside as if they were like in a clothes dryer. All of the actors choreographed where they were going to roll and what they would grab onto so they weren't really falling into each other. But Macy kind of cheekily claims that the male actors did not mind at all falling on Taya Leone. He was so smitten he regrets that he and Leone were not offered a love scene at the very least. Alessandro Nivola, playing the graduate student Billy Brennan, he felt his role was completely ill-defined when they started filming. He was supposedly this brilliant graduate student, and yet he was asked to do some very dumb things. So Nivola complained about that. Johnson said, hey, do whatever you can if you want to make that role better. Round out your character. So Nivola worked really hard to try to bring a lot of personality to a very basic role. In fact, he was scripted to die after getting picked apart by a pteranodon in the aviary, but he thought his death was going to sour the experience for younger viewers who really related to him as one of the youngest main characters in the film. But he later regretted the decision to keep his character alive somewhat because he learned that he was contractually obligated to return for a Jurassic Park sequel if they so chose to bring his character back. And he had found the shoot for Jurassic Park 3 so monotonous, and he claimed that if it weren't for Sam Neill entertaining all of the rest of the cast with his ukulele playing Beach Boy songs, that he would have gone absolutely insane. Now, in contrast to Nivola's experience, Taya Leone absolutely loved her role here. She begged Johnson, please do not kill her character. She wanted to return for Jurassic Park 4, maybe even be Alan Grant's lover by that point and leave her husband behind if that was what was required. She saw the running and jumping was really helping her take off her baby weight. She just recently had a daughter, although her weight loss does end up in some minor continuity issues, especially in the reshoots, because she fluctuated about 15 pounds depending on which shot she's in. Now, Macy, when he was acting with Tia Leone, he noticed that she started sticking out her chest a lot more during certain moments. And she responded that, hey, because she had recently had a baby, her breasts were not going to be that big ever again. So she wanted them as much as possible to be captured on film. Although he was the producer, Spielberg really was so busy with the AI, he didn't have time to visit the set in Hawaii, even though there was a chair always available for him if he ever chose to. He did drop by the Universal lot occasionally when they started filming there. Spielberg, when he was there, he saw Johnson working with all of the huge animatronics setups 
and all of the kinks and mishaps that had to be worked out. And he joked to Johnson, boy, I'm glad I don't have to do this. Johnson remarked, hey, it's, it was even worse in Hawaii. He never cussed so much while he was on a movie set. And at his most frustrated moments, Johnson just felt like quitting. He looked toward the Hawaiian shore, wishing he could dive into the ocean and swim all the way back home instead of remaining at the helm of this $100 million production without any kind of overall game plan. He expressed very negatively to others he was working with how he really wished that he could somehow find a way to hang himself or blow his brains out, kind of gallows humor to try to, to lighten the mood. Although he was very serious at some points about leaving. He even called his agent once. He beseeched him, find a way, any way to get him out of continuing to direct this picture, even if it was going to mean the end of his career. He was absolutely miserable during many moments of making Jurassic Park, so much so that he said he would not return for Jurassic Park 4, even though he would change his mind on that later, but I'll get into that on a future episode. Now, after the rough cut was all assembled, Spielberg was left feeling dissatisfied, especially with how the film ends. It just didn't feel like it ended on a very great note that a Jurassic Park film should. So he asked for more money. He wanted to do some additional shooting in Hawaii, and eventually shot something, a rescue mission that was, you know, not the most satisfying ending, but it definitely was on a higher note than what they had originally shot. Now, for the score, John Williams, he was busy, obviously, composing for AI for Spielberg. So John Williams did recommend the services of Don Davis. Davis was uh, hot coming off of The Matrix, so Spielberg asked Davis to respect what Williams did in the first two films, but also balance what he could bring to those well-known Williams cues with his own, and he brought in more emphasis on horns and oboes and other things, other other instruments that distinguishes Jurassic Park 3, at least from the first two films, sufficiently. Despite all of its troubled production, all of the lackluster reviews it eventually got when it was released, Jurassic Park 3 still was financially successful. It took in $181 million in the United States and $368 million if you consider the worldwide gross. And that was off of its budget of about $93 million. It was still especially profitable for Steven Spielberg, even though he was not very hands-on here. His deal still gave him 20% of the overall gross and 50% of all the merchandising tie-ins. Now, some speculate because, you know, it does have a 92-minute runtime that there must have been rampant gunning involved, that they were just not confident at all in this film, and they they just wanted to chop it down to get more showings and get more money at the movie theaters. Johnston always has dismissed this theory. He claims that his very first rough cut lasted only 98 minutes, so he really only chopped out maybe only 10 minutes or so if you tack on those credits at the end. He did make cuts to tighten the pacing. He also had to make a few cuts to appease the MPAA because they objected to giving a PG-13 rating for some of the most gruesome moments. They especially keyed in on the sounds of either bones crunching or necks snapping as the dinosaurs were killing off some of the human characters. One of the jokes they had, at least at the rap party, was that the gift for everybody was going to be, finally, a completed script for everyone. So one thing to consider, you know, if you think about Jurassic Park 3, as far as the overall quality goes and my grade, if you look at what a great director like Steven Spielberg, he seemed to have run out of gas completely with this material before he started making The Lost World. So if The Lost World was pretty lackluster, it would seem pretty impossible for a lesser director to come in and do something more with The Leftovers. You know, so if you come into Jurassic Park 3 with low expectations, it's not going to recapture the the majesty and kind of the brilliance of the plot of the original Jurassic Park. 
it's still kind of disappointing in how quickly the series became subpar. You know, Spielberg, he wanted to produce the Jurassic Park sequels, specifically because he disliked what they had done with the Jaws series without him. So the results here, even with Spielberg involved with the executive producing of the Jurassic Park sequels, shows, well, really, there's very little difference when all the creative ideas are exhausted in trying to keep this premise going without any direction on where to go. Even the introduction of flying dinosaurs or pterosaurs, that's kind of a weak reason to return for a third entry. So without any kind of Crichton book to provide an intelligent backbone to the script, Jurassic Park 3 remains kind of a, a no-brain chomp fest that will satisfy those people who are looking for that. I mean, it's, it's very watchable in that respect. But given the talent on board and the potential to do something more, at least something very different, it's kind of disappointing to see how much contempt seemingly they had for the audiences out there that they decided to rush this into production without any real notion of where to go except to deliver whatever visual goods that they could and even they give that short shrift so two stars is really the best i can give jurassic park three two stars on my scale means that it's lacking something vital that would keep it from being a film i could recommend to most people and that which is lacking is obviously a reason to exist it really doesn't push forward the epic saga very much it's just like I mentioned, a chomp fest featuring characters that we don't really get to like that much. I mean, it does return Alan Grant, and I think it is a more nuanced role for Sam Neill, so there's that, but still, so much more really could and should have been done that it's no surprise that they really had a hard time keeping the franchise alive after this, although there was plans to make a Jurassic Park 4, which I will talk about on the next episode, but for now, two stars is the best I can give. Jurassic Park 3. Now, as I mentioned, I will talk about the proposals to make Jurassic Park 4 and where that went and what, how it, it ended up in development hell for so, so very long, given the lucrative nature of these Jurassic Park films and why it took all the way till 2015 to make Jurassic World, which will be the film I cover on the very next episode. So there will be a lot of background material on the attempts to make a Jurassic Park 4 and how it became eventually Jurassic World. All of that will be detailed on the next episode of To the 90s and Beyond. So I hope you'll stay tuned for that. If you have your own thoughts on Jurassic Park 3, and there are people who still champion Jurassic Park 3 as underrated, including Sam Neill. He thinks that at least until you get to the last 15 minutes, it's actually a, a really good film. You can write to me. You can find my contact information at my website, links to my Twitter feed, my Facebook page, my Instagram, as well as my email. Email is the best way, by the way, if you want to get in touch with me and have me respond. You can find all of the links for everything at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Until next time, thank you so much, everyone, for listening and joining me as we travel to the 90s and beyond.